Arizona's public university system has had tens of millions of dollars cut from its state funding during and after the Great Recession. But the Board of Regents has been focused on a strategic plan for what's next. I'm Steve Goldstein. On today's Here and Now, Board of Regents President Eileen Klein discusses the university's economic impact. We'll also find out more about concerns related to the U of A's College of Medicine and the early stages of the search for the U of A's next president. Plus, Arizona's primary election isn't quite over yet, as the 5th Congressional District's GOP race is headed for a recount. How did we get to this stage, and how complicated will the upcoming steps be? Also, same-sex marriage and transgender rights have been impacting people all over the country. For its latest discussion, Legal Bodies, the Origins Project at ASU takes those on. I'll talk with Origins founder, Lawrence Krauss. And the Scottsdale Cultural Council is now Scottsdale Arts. We'll find out why the new branding is important. Here and now is next on KJZZ. The news is first. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Coming up this hour, Arizona's primary election isn't quite over yet, as the GOP's 5th Congressional District battle is headed for a recount. Plus, the Scottsdale Cultural Council has a new name. I'll talk with CEO Neil Pearl about the branding shift. We start today's program by catching up on the Arizona Board of Regents. Arizona's state university system had tens of millions of dollars reduced in its budget during the depths of the Great Recession. That in itself wasn't unique, but some other states have embraced the concept of pumping more of that money back into the schools post-recession. At the close of the most recent legislative session, Governor Doug Ducey did sign a budget that restored a small percentage of that higher ed funding, but is that amount going to make a difference? With me to talk about the current state of public university budgets and other items is Eileen Klein, president of the Arizona Board of Regents. Eileen, you and the Regents have been focused on a strategic plan that has specific goals for the state's three public universities. And you've also discussed additional funding that was approved by the governor and the legislature. Was that kind of evolution required, even as the universities have worked to recover from the huge reductions in state funding? Well, the higher education landscape overall has changed enormously and continues to change. So it's important for public universities, not just in Arizona, but across the country, to really define what they're for. But students today have more options than ever, and gone are the days where the state's going to underwrite all of the operational costs of a university. So it was important for us to really think about our universities as a public enterprise, and that's how we treat ourselves. We consider ourselves to be a public enterprise that's here to deliver value. So we need to understand what, what we exist to do and what really what portion of our operations will be funded by the state. When Governor Ducey came and visited the board last year, he made it very clear that the university should count on the state being one of many investors. And so in Arizona, we have really worked hard to define a new model. So all of the work to create a new strategic plan, to define a new way for the state to invest in our universities, which is now based on resident students, all of that has been done because of our recognition that we shouldn't be paid, you know, just because we are. That, And really, we shouldn't just have a certain number of people who believe in public universities. We really need everybody to understand how universities contribute to the economy. But it's on us. It's on us at the Board of Regents and for our university leaders to really define to define how we're going to be successful both academically and financially. Did you and the Regents, Eileen, have to take that step based on almost the way the wind was blowing, or is there really a philosophy that feels like, yes, maybe the state should fund in a different way or should fund based on what you're saying with strategic plan, actual evidence of results? Because I think there are some who would say, well, again, constitutionally, there is that responsibility And some would feel that some lawmakers were shirking that. So are you saying this makes more sense based on 
the atmosphere we're in or based on the fact that it really makes sense as well? Well, the overall plan was really designed to help support the public universities. So a new strategic plan was created, but what was clear was that the universities needed a new approach with the legislature. Many states have pursued performance funding. That concept never really caught on in Arizona. We already have a performance-oriented enterprise, so we didn't need the state to try to drive dollars to encourage higher levels of performance. We had set strong goals and strong contracts requirements for each of our executive leaders. So that wasn't the issue. The issue was really trying to have the state, as it continues to recover, think differently about how to fund higher education experience for individuals. And when you really peel back what's going on in the Constitution, yes, the Constitution says that there shall be a public university, but we spent some time trying to think about why. Why why should the state be contributing and how should they fund? So a big change in our funding model came about when we decided to stop funding institutions and begin directing support to individuals. After all, really what the Constitution is looking after is individuals and their rights and their opportunities. And we felt that approaching the legislature and creating a model that really began to fund opportunities for individuals was going to be more successful. And in fact, that that model, this new resident student funding model, has now won support, not just from lawmakers in the form of new appropriations, which we're delighted for, but really has been a catalyst in statewide we have garnered the support of many, many business organizations and community organizations who really understand now how the state should be contributing to public universities. So the, all of that has come about in part, yes, because of some market change dynamics, but really because we needed a complete rethink about the state's relationship to its public universities. And as that goes forward, how important is collaboration? I'm even thinking about here, I'm, I'm sitting right now in a community college building. Is it important for the universities to work with the community colleges as well? The relationship with Arizona's public universities and community colleges has never been more important. We have almost as many community college transfers now as we do first-time, full-time freshmen. So this relationship's only going to get more important. And students are really recognizing the opportunity to start at a community college and then eventually continue on their pathway to university. And our states worked very hard to encourage those types of partnerships and to create those pathways. And they've done it in lieu of creating a state university system that you see in other states, which we hope also is much more cost-effective. But really, we need to recognize the enormous challenges in creating enough opportunities for individuals. In the coming weeks, you'll hear us talk much more about post-secondary attainment. We need in Arizona to be very aggressive about making sure that all individuals, whether they're students today or already in the workforce as adults, are thinking about how to make sure they have the skills and credentials that they need. And, you know, universities are just one way to achieve that. But it's important that we have greater continuity and greater connectivity from high school all the way through college, including up through university education. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix, joined by the president of the Arizona Board of Regents, Eileen Klein. Eileen, let's talk a bit about uh, some of the concerns around the University of Arizona Medical School. Uh, the regents met about this. There has been concern about monies being spent, public funds. Can you give us an update on where you're at with that? The Arizona Board of Regents has recently instructed the board's general counsel to engage an outside expert to compile information and review and evaluate some of the concerns that had been brought to the board and to me about the University of Arizona Colleges of Medicine. We're asking an outside firm to compile information and to submit a report back to the board's general counsel and to the board itself. 
And this action follows two public hearings that the board recently held to really get an update and an understanding about how things are going at the colleges of medicine. We know that these schools are tremendously successful. They are highly sought after by students and they're delivering a high-quality education, but some issues had been raised by different factions in the community, including by our state's medical association, that the board felt warranted further uh, further evaluation. And so the board's going to have a report submitted. Hopefully, we'll have some preliminary results by September, just to kind of field through. You know, we want to field all of those concerns, sort through them, and then figure out what really needs to be done to make sure that we have strong colleges of medicine. Based on what you heard. Are there concerns that you think are, are worth digging into? Well, certainly I spoke up at one of the public hearings to represent uh, some of the concerns that had been brought to me. I think there are some concerns. Um, some former employees and even some current employees have raised, I don't know the level of those concerns, you know, how how serious they are. I take all concerns seriously. We're a public body and, and we want to make sure that things are operating with, you know, with the utmost respect for the use of public resources. So rather than us trying to sort through all of the concerns and do any kind of investigation from here, that didn't seem appropriate. So we wanted to be sure that we brought in an independent party to just field all the concerns, make sure that people feel that they have a confidential ear that they can turn to and share any of their concerns. And then the board and the university leadership then has a chance to put into place any changes that need to be made to make sure that we are operating, again, with the utmost integrity and that we're operating with excellence. And that's ultimately my goal. That's the board's goal, I know, is to make sure that these schools are operated with excellence and without any exception. And that's where we're headed. So we'll look forward to getting some of the results back starting in September and forming a plan from there. And also there's a search that has begun for the next University of Arizona president. There was controversy surrounding current president Ann Weaver Hart related to her taking a board position with DeVry. There were lawmakers that expressed concerns about that. Going forward as this search goes on, I know it won't be necessarily a short one, but a couple of different things. One is, is there any reason to think that some of the controversy related to the current president will will linger in this search? And part two, even though you've expressed optimism about funding situation going forward, uh, some of the creative aspects of that as well, is Arizona seen as a place that is even more challenging than perhaps other state universities? And could that make it tough finding the best candidates? Well, the Arizona Board of Regents has now launched a search for the new president of the University of Arizona following President Ann Weaver Hart's decision not to seek a contract extension. Her contract goes through 2018, which allows the board a long window, but just this week the board met and has decided that their goal is to try to have a new president identified and put into place by next summer. Presidential searches are comprehensive, and you want them to be very involved. We want to make sure that we have lots of community representation and lots of community input. But at the same time, we can't dawdle. It's important for the board to move along with this search because this is a very competitive time now in higher education. We have a number of high research institutions who are going to be out searching. A couple of California universities will be out searching at the same time. So it's important that our state act quickly. It's also important to note that the University of Arizona is an incredibly attractive opportunity for someone. It is a one of the nation's preeminent research institutions. It has its home to some of the top scholars and researchers, and it is 
it is a super land grant university with two separately accredited colleges of medicine. And while somebody might look at that portfolio and think, wow, that's very complex, that's very challenging, I think to us that really represents a terrific opportunity. Arizona sits in a growth corridor for the United States. This state's approach to higher education is highly innovative, highly flexible. So this is going to be a premier opportunity for a very dynamic and visionary leader. And the truth is we need a leader who can commit long-term now to build on the successes that have been have been garnered in the past several years around the University of Arizona and to really take that platform and further define its mission and create that bright future. We have worked hard to differentiate the missions of all three of our universities. Each one is irreplaceable and each one is not the same. And so we need a dynamic visionary leader who's going to chart that future for for the university and for that community. When Regent Mark Killian, for example, was in, he was very open about his opinions about certain things. And some people thought that was good. Some people thought that was not so good. Do you feel like it is okay in the public sphere for members of the regions, for yourself to to have conflict with what's going on? Or should it be a different sort of style to make sure that people are playing well together? Well, the Arizona Board of Regents is the public's fiduciary. They govern the university system of this state. It's a constitutional system, and it's a constitutional body, and we take that responsibility with the utmost seriousness. The statute and the Constitution both give nearly all of the responsibility for running these universities to the Board of Regents, and it's important that the regents have a strong understanding of what's needed for the success of the universities and that they be strong advocates for the plans that they develop. So this is not a board that can afford to preside. This is a board that absolutely has to be engaged and has to continue to educate both the public and lawmakers on what's really going to be needed for the long-term success. We are the people's representatives. And at the same time, having said that, we work for the people, so we need to be responsive. And I think in the coming weeks and months, there's going to be more contemplation about what the right governance design is for the Board of Regents. There's always a debate about you know, what, how the best way is to run things, but the most important thing is to have a strong group of committed individuals who are highly accountable for the success of our public universities, and that's what we're working to build. Eileen Klein is president of the Arizona Board of Regents. Eileen, always my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for the time. Bye-bye. And still to come on Here and Now, we'll get an update on Congressional District 5 on the GOP side. And we'll also find out from Tom Collins about voter turnout and voter information. Stay with us. KJZZ is supported by Moores and Cabot Investments and D.N. Griebel in their Mesa branch. Moores and Cabot is a 125-year-old national wealth management firm that is a member of the New York Stock Exchange, FINRA, and SIPC. And good morning. You're listening to Here and Now on KJZZ 91.5 FM. If you're listening online or the free mobile app, thanks for joining us. It'll be breezy today with a 50% chance of rain, a high right around 90 degrees. This evening, mostly cloudy, 30% chance of rain and a low of 76. Tomorrow, we're looking for a high of 93. In traffic, if you're in Tucson, I-10 westbound at Congress, heavy rain in this part of the city is causing delays on the freeways. Use caution in those areas on I-10 in Tucson. Around the state, heavy rain in 69 in Tucson, partly cloudy, 65 in Flagstaff. In Prescott, it's partly sunny and 73 degrees. And in Phoenix, cloudy skies and 82 degrees at 1121.
You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Arizona's primary election was held eight days ago, but there's one major race which hasn't been settled quite yet. It's the GOP battle in the 5th Congressional District between the two candidates who finished at the top, Andy Biggs and Christine Jones. As last Tuesday night faded into Wednesday morning, Jones had a lead of more than 1%, but as final ballots were tallied, Biggs ended up on top by nine votes. An official recount is expected to start next week, but legal questions are still pending that put the Biggs and Jones campaigns in a hearing on Tuesday afternoon. With me to discuss the 5th District and the Congressional primary is Tyler Montague, who lives there and is the president of Public Integrity Alliance. Tyler, good morning. Thank you, Steve. How are you? I'm good. So how are voters and residents reacting to how close the election was and also the need for a recount? For example, are Don Stapley and Justin Olson getting criticized at all by folks because maybe they split some of the vote? Well, you know, both of those camps would disagree. I uh, did some consulting with the Stapley camp and felt like they had a right to run. And uh, But, you know, the Jones camp feels that the Stapley camp took some of their votes, and then the Biggs camp feels that the Olsen uh, group took some of their votes. So there is some of that going on, and mostly people are just on the edge of their seats. It's amazing to have 85,000 votes and have it come down to, to nine votes. Tyler, tell us a little bit more about the 5th District. Um, who lives and votes in that primary? How conservative are the voters there, and has there been a change recently? Well, so the 5th District is the bulk of Mesa, east of uh, Stately Drive, and Gilbert, and then encompasses a little piece of uh, East uh, Chandler and uh, Queen Creek. Those are about 15%, Gilbert's about 30%, and Mesa's about 50% of the 5th District. Uh, it's a very conservative area. Um, you've got uh, a high Mormon uh, population. In fact, three of the four candidates were Mormons. Stapley, Biggs, and Olson are all Mormons. And uh, that's a very active population in the East Valley. Uh, Gilbert has a lot of uh, college-educated, uh, younger population. And so that plays into the politics uh, out here as well. But generally, very a, a very conservative group. Uh, a little bit different than the West Valley, um, but these primaries tend to be a competition to see who's the most conservative. Yeah, and the general public saw a lot of Christine Jones TV ads, and I actually didn't notice that I saw I saw a few Don Stapley ads. Didn't see much when it came to Andy Biggs, at least where I was watching, or uh, Justin Olson. But how intense did the campaign get within the district? If we're not talking about ads, just sort of door to door, did it get fairly nasty? You know, there was a lot of intense campaigning. Jones spent, uh, I think, approximately $2 million. And so uh, you could, you know, literally be force-fed her ads, and her ads were very well made, a very, very uh, effective presentation. I think that's how she did well. Biggs had about $1.1 million, uh, Stately about half a million, and uh, Olson was, you know, somewhere over 100000 and, and they, you know, roughly finished in that order. The, uh, you know, it wasn't as intense of a, a knife fight or a civil war as we've <laughs> seen out here uh, in, in other elections. I think the uh, Sam and uh, Adams election, for example, was, was just uh, bloody on the ground. Uh, you see the intensity between the Olsen and Biggs camps where they, they're really competing for the same ultra-conservative voters, Olsen, uh, criticized Biggs for not voting to uh, uh, or allowing a, a vote on the Article 5 Convention of the States to try and pass a balanced budget amendment. 
banks countered that that was possibly a a uh, you know a plot to overthrow the constitution. There there are a lot of you know there's there's bickering on those lines. And then for more traditional uh, conservatives, you had competition between Stapley and, and Jones. And uh, there were a lot of negative ads, a lot of negative mail. There's the uh, signs uh, that went up throughout the district uh, pointing out the flaws of each other. So it's pretty intense. So, Tyler, let's say um, we don't know the outcome officially yet. Obviously, there's going to be a recount. Um, how different would the representation be, depending on the outcome of the legal issues of the recount? How different, you sort of touched on it, but how different when it comes to actually if they were to become representatives? How different do you think the philosophies of Jones and Biggs would be, and how could that affect the district? Well, both conservative uh, people with with some gifts to bring to the to the office. Jones would uh, bring her business experience. I think she doesn't see uh, a congressional office as a place that she would go and stay for uh, you know 15, 20 years. Uh, she wanted to run for governor. I think you would see her uh, consider another office. You know, in not too long a time. Uh, Biggs, on the other hand, I think uh, doesn't seem to display those kinds of aspirations. He's a policy guy, extremely conservative. He would go and join what they call the uh, Liberty Caucus, the Freedom Freedom Caucus, there in the uh, in the Congress, and that's a group that's kind of been a little bit more obstructionist. Um, so I think you'd see some differences on on those lines, and. Uh, you know, I, hard, to, hard to know until they're actually in office. Yeah. It's, Tyler, really briefly, maybe 30 seconds or so if you can, really curious about whether there'll be lingering issues. You mentioned the Salmon-Adams race. I don't know if there were lingering issues after that. Do you think there's going to be some bitterness following this one, whichever way it turns out? Uh, you know, probably not more than normal. I think <laughs> you're seeing some fracturing in the conservative wing of the, the party. Uh, this is you know, Olson and Biggs are both very conservative, and you see a little fracturing there. The the Trump uh, election has caused a lot of fracturing with some favoring Donald Trump and others, uh, you know, recoiling at some of his positions and, and supporting Cruz, uh, and then you know maybe not supporting Trump, voting third party. Mm. I think I think there's some fractures forming along those lines, and those might be the the most enduring uh, things. And this this race has a little bit of a manifestation of that. Tyler Montague is president of Public Integrity Alliance. We've been talking about the GOP's 5th Congressional District primary. Tyler, thanks. Thank you. are listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Turnout in Arizona's primary elections rarely meets the highest expectations of anyone in the community, whether they're candidates, consultants, or organizers. Is that because registered voters aren't especially interested if an election doesn't involve presidential candidates or nominees? Do they simply not have enough information, or are they not trying to find that information? With me to talk for a few minutes about those questions is Tom Collins, Executive Director of the Citizens Clean Elections Commission. And Tom, I've got my voter education guide right in front of me. Um, is 
is this the best place for folks to get information? Is there enough voter information available if people are looking for it? Well, I think that uh, uh, that's a good question. And, you know, the, the voters that when they created the Clean Elections Act, they created uh, their candidate statement pamphlet, the Voter Education Guide, that gives them information about every candidate that's uh, running for election in their state uh, office and um, uh, or their legislative district. Um, and that's delivered right to their door. It's available on our website. Um, it's available on our app uh, with, through the, the App Store on Apple uh, right now. You know, so there's lots of different touch points there. Uh, we also do debates that are both live and and you know then played on YouTube um, uh, are available on our YouTube channel. So those, there's lots of different candidate touch points there on the on the uh, on the lead, on the front of. Um, of uh, initiatives, you know, the Secretary of State puts out a publicity pamphlet as well. And so I think that, you know, I, I think that there is, there are tools out there that folks have. Um, connecting people to those tools in more ways is something the commission has been focusing on over the course of the last couple of years. That's why we can, you know, you can, you don't, re- there's no where you can go with respect to clean elections without being able to find information about uh, state candidates. You know, we have a way you can go you know, find your district on our website and drill down that way. You can go through the app, or you can, if your app is the book itself, um, you know that that's going to work. And you know, one of the things we've done to make that simpler is this year, for the first time, we actually narrowed it so that it used to be you got um, um, all of the legislative candidates for the entire you know legislature. So you know, uh, thirty seats in the Senate, sixty seats in the House. We've now tailored it to district by district, which means that folks are getting only the voters, only the candidates they want. And that's something that when we were talking to voters and doing um, uh, research with them, that's something that they want to know who, who, who am I and who's the person I'm running. And they're more likely to open something uh, that's, that's, that's not as thick. Well, how much of the onus do you think is on voters to, to seek out the opportunity? And one of the reasons I want to bring it up, and this is not saying this happened to many people, but a colleague of mine uh, did an interview last week, and there were some people who actually were, were upset because when they actually went to to vote on primary day, they actually took their ballot there, they thought it was a presidential election, and they were annoyed that, that people were telling them it wasn't. So there, I know it's just a few people, but I do wonder how much do we put on voters and how much do we have to say, let me hold your hand and bring here? Well, I, look, I think that we've got to be candid with ourselves about what election officials were were required to put together and some of these decisions were party decisions in terms are just inevitable because of the presidential primary some of them are legislative decisions in terms of when to schedule the referendum elections that happened in the may in may but this year there were on a statewide basis four different elections and there's one still to come mm-hmm. in november uh, with three different rules for who is eligible to vote in those elections. So the May election and the general election have the same rules. Everybody gets to vote. But the presidential primary and the August 30th primary have different rules. So, yes, the, we uh, correctly say, you know, voting is something that's very important and it's important you take responsibility. But we have put on voters an awful lot of different rules to know for the purpose of this a particular election cycle. I mean, really kind of extraordinary. And so I was actually interested in the fact that according to the latest numbers that are up on the Secretary of State's website, the primary turnout for this election was 29%, which is basically what it was in 2014 and basically what it was in um, 2012. Mm -hmm. Now, you're right in the presidential, uh, the general election, it goes up uh, from like about 40 to about 70 in some years. Um, but the fact that you still had 29% turnout despite 
you know, and in cities like Tempe, you had a spring election addition. Despite all that, is actually pretty impressive. I mean, I think you know, you know, you know, she kind of got to give voters, uh, you know, a pat on the back for the fact that they've now had as many as five. Most everybody had four mm-hmm. elections that they're looking at in one year. This primary, you know, yes, the fact that the turnout stayed consistent, I think, is actually a, a, a good sign. Tom, these are big issues, and we don't have much time to talk about them. So I want to make it fairly quick. I've got about 90 seconds here to discuss this. 29% that a lot of people still sounds, you know, not great. So what what's a, what do you think is a reasonable percentage for us to shoot for? And is there is there an idea or two that you think might, might uh, amp it up a little bit? Well, look, the, ultimately setting the date of the primary is something the legislature um, does or I guess voters could do if they decided that they wanted to do an initiative on that. I think there have been discussions in the legislature in the past about moving the date um, earlier. Mm-hmm. Many other states have their primaries for their state offices and their federal offices earlier. I think Florida and Arizona are some of the rare ones that are this late uh, in the game. Um, many people do it much, much earlier. So there's a view that uh, some legislators who've talked about changing this have espoused that said, look, if we want to get turnout up, if we want to get attention paid to this and get more time to campaign and in general, we ought to move it to a different time. There's other folks who think that that, that doesn't, uh, doesn't work. So that's been debated in the legislature. I assume it'll continue to be. But is there a percentage you would shoot for? Uh, I don't know. I'm hesitant to, <laughs> to, to stick at a target. I think that given the amount of both elections and election-related uh, um, issues that were in the news, maintaining this year mm-hmm. is a success. Tom Collins, Executive Director of the Citizens Clean Elections Commission. Tom, always good to catch up. Thanks. Thank you. Stay with us on Here and Now. Coming up, we'll have a panel talking about LGBT issues, and we'll find out why Scottsdale Cultural Council changed its name. Stay with us. KJZZ is supported by REDW CPAs, business and financial advisors serving the tax, audit, and financial needs of businesses and individuals since 1953. Offices in Phoenix and Albuquerque. Information at REDW.com. And good morning. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now on 91.5 FM. Coming up at noon on NPR's Here and Now, Brian Clark escaped from the World Trade Center on 9-11, saving someone along the way, and they're still friends. We'll hear that story and more coming up at noon on Here and Now. It'll be breezy today, a 50% chance of rain and a high of 90. This evening, a 30% chance of rain under mostly cloudy skies and a low of 76. Tomorrow, our chance of rain drops to 10% with a high of 93. Around the state, it's 69 in Tucson, 65 in Flagstaff, and it's cloudy and 82 in Phoenix at 1136. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. The U.S. has seen extensive arguments in recent months and years in courtrooms and communities related to whether people of the same gender can legally marry and which public restroom a person is permitted to use. Even as the conversations become more prevalent and more Americans know gay, lesbian, and transgender people, the conversations and arguments over the issues continue. Coming up tonight at 7 at the Orpheum Theater in Phoenix, ASU's Origins Project will hold its latest great debate. This one is titled Political Bodies, Sex, Gender, and Reproductive Rights. With me now are Origins Project founder Lawrence Krauss and two of the panelists, Phyllis randolph Fry, who's known as the grandmother of the National Transgender Legal and Political Movement, and professor, author, and LGBT advocate Jennifer Finney-Boylan. Jennifer, let me start with you. How much of the controversy, the fighting over some of these issues, has to do with the lack of familiarity, a lack of education, and how much of it has to do with 
something deeper uh, that is inside certain people that they're offended by uh, the notion of, of transgender people or same-sex marriage? I think education takes place in two ways. Um, in creative writing, I'm a, a teacher of writing, uh, there's an old cliche about show, don't tell. And showing and telling are two different ways of educating people. And so um, telling is something that we're very good at uh, in the university. Um, we can give lectures. We can show people the science behind the um, uh, complexity of gender. But then there's the showing. And by showing, I mean experiencing the lived lives of real human beings who are in danger, who are vulnerable in this society. Um, and so you have uh, Phyllis and myself uh, as two um, individuals who will, uh, I hope, show what it is like to to live a life. And the, in some ways, it's a, it's a wonderful time to be a transgender person in this country because uh, visibility is increasing and um, uh, understanding is increasing, but it's also um, we're also more at risk than ever before, and we face um, uh, prejudice and the threat of violence, and so it, it can be a very hard life. Phyllis, you've been called the grandmother of this movement, and certainly none of this happened overnight, but to people who are not familiar with with the struggles and with the legal battles and everything else that has gone on, uh, what does the evolution of this in the public sphere indicate to you? I'm a lawyer, and the main thing that uh, we are fighting with right now, whether it's in, soon to be in Texas when the legislature convenes in January, and it's going on in North Carolina and other states, is this big restroom brouhaha. Now, uh, again, I'm going to give you a shorthand. If you, whatever state you live in, it doesn't matter. If you Google your state's penal code or criminal statutes, use whatever word you want, and if you will put in the words uh, indecent exposure, um, uh, rape, um, entrapment, uh, videoing in the restrooms, whatever, you will find that all of the bugaboos that are being put out about transgenders wanting to invade the restrooms so that they can molest your children, you will find out that there already are laws that make all the things you're afraid of either jailable offenses or prisonable offenses. So that's one thing you need to consider. The other thing you need to consider is that transgender people only use the restroom to use the restroom. And uh, I've been using the women's restroom for 40 years, and, and I haven't bothered anybody yet. And I, I think it's important to take a moment to realize this conversation is not about restrooms. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there, that uh, the, um, the issue in North Carolina has been invented to galvanize um, fear to stir up and to stir up trouble where there really was none. I think the real issue is that people don't like the idea that other people are different. And transgender people who live a, um, a, a hard and in many cases endangered life want nothing except equal protection under the law and to be left alone. So I think what we need to get our minds around the fact is that this is a it's a it's a big country it is a, it is a big human race and that there is room for all of us i mean the nature 
has given us the Venus flytrap and the lobster and the blue potato. And, and, and surely if there is room for all of that variation, there is certainly r- room for, um, for, for, for transgender people and for you and for me. Yes, uh, okay. go ahead. Well, I consider myself to be one of the blue potatoes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm on my third career as a lawyer because I was a military officer. Um, and also, I'm a licensed professional engineer, and I was run out of both uh, careers. And I became a lawyer quite by accident. I'm a very successful lawyer. And I deal with transgender people all the time. And we are just struggling to be who we are. We're just trying to live. And we didn't transition, you know, on a whim. Um, I know Jenny's the same way. And I know all the transgender people that I know and the clients that I've had. The last thing that we want to do is to transition. And it's only until we finally reach the point that there's nothing left other than the scars which I have on my wrist, and I know others have on their wrists or have done some other attempted or successful form of suicide, that uh, you just got to get on with your life and uh, try to make the best of it. So that's the blue potato speaking. Uh, I'll, let me, I'll just want to jump in one second. You know, when we're going to be talking about a number of things tonight, mm-hmm. and transgender is just one of them, but I mean, same-sex marriage is another example. And what, what it's funny, what, what what I hope we can really try and convey is some people think something's unnatural, whatever that means, but it's not a unnatural because it's common. And in fact, uh, as I pointed out, uh, same-sex marriage, for example, about 10% of sheep enter into long-term, long-term um, monogamous homosexual relationships. I don't think those sheep have a soul that, that one can worry about. And so I think what one finds is that because of culture, history, fear, ideology and sometimes religion and all those things are mixed up together mm-hmm. people people see things that are different call that unnatural and want and for some reason it it scares them and 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 so what what I hope we can convey is that there's a wide spectrum of of human activities that are perfectly perfectly in some sense perfectly normal and and it, and and people uh, should realize and open their minds to what those possibilities are but as a physicist who determines what natural is, because that seems to be people decide for themselves, well, this is because I think this is the way things are. Some people decide they get it from the Bible, wherever it may be. How much of a wall is that to overcome? Well, I think it's, it's uh, part of what we can do with science is, is explain to people that what they think is normal about everything in life is not normal necessarily. What they think is th- their myopic view of reality is just that. And, and as, a, as a physicist, I love to point out the universe is quite different than we imagine. And get over it. And I can say from the, the point of view of, uh, of a Christian that what all that is required in order to embrace uh, transgender people, gay people, all of the wonderful variations in human experience, you know, what, you know what you have to do? Open your heart. That is all that we are asking um, other Americans to do. Open your heart. Love one another as I have loved you, as we're told in the New Testament. And that you don't have to understand. I mean, obviously, I, I would like for everyone to be as well educated on these topics as possible. But shy of that, 
If you open your heart first and approach other people who are different with kindness and compassion, um, if love fills you first, knowledge can come uh, right after that. So, in some ways, it's very. In some ways, it's a, it's a very complex topic. Of course, um, that's what's so thrilling about it. But the first step, in some ways, is very very simple. Just be kind. And and she's right, and that's a very nice way of expressing it. I come from a different uh, perspective. I don't accept these people's wanting to have authority over my life. They don't live my life. They don't pay my bills. They don't cry when I cry. They don't hurt when I hurt. And so I just will not accept their uh, authority over my life. When you go to uh, the topic of same-sex marriages, my wife stayed with me. Jenny's wife stayed with her. My wife has stayed with me now for 43 years. And shortly after I transitioned, there was a tremendous, tremendous amount of pressure on her to leave me. And she wouldn't leave me because she told a lot of them, including her family, if I leave Phyllis, she's going to be out on the street. And she hasn't done anything wrong. And not only that, I took a vow. Uh, She took a vow, uh, a marriage vow, and uh, any of the insults and ugliness that she has gotten in her life, and she has gotten a lot of it, is for one reason only, and that is she stayed true to her vow. If someone honestly comes to this and doesn't want to rule your life, but actually has, but frankly is, is confused, has either lived a life where they did not know someone who was transgender somehow didn't know someone who was homosexual, maybe going into same-sex marriage. What are, there, are there any appropriate questions to ask that are not insensitive and mean and intolerant? A question that I wrestle with sometimes is whether or not I'm still transgender, having been through the transition uh, going, on, going on 20 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I live my life as, as a woman, and I, I don't think of myself as a person who has an asterisk next, next to her name. Um, and yet, I'm 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 best known for um, for speaking on these issues. I guess I feel if people um, approach me with um, kindness and respect, um, I'm willing, generally, to respond in kind. There are some things that are that are too personal and that are that are really no one's business. But um, I also accept the fact that we 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 can't learn unless we we ask. So as long as people ask me questions in a in a respectful uh, manner, in a safe manner, I'm fine. Some people uh, come at me about my so-called lifestyle. When I was a kid, I was in the Boy Scouts, and I am still an Eagle Scout. In fact, I'm a life member of the National Eagle Scout Association as Phyllis. And whenever people come at me about my lifestyle, I just look at them and I said, you know, I try to live my life in accordance with the Scout law. And if anybody knows what that means, it means that I try to live a life that's trustworthy, loyal, loyal helpful, helpful, friendly, courteous, courteous kind, kind, obedient, obedient. <laughs> cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. And that's the way I try to live my life, and that's the way I think everybody would benefit if they lived their life the same way. So get off my back. Yeah, well, I only got about um, uh, uh, six, six of those because I, right. I, I left after, after, after a year. <laughs> <laughs> well, as someone who was never a Boy Scout and someone whose life is irreverent, let me jump in. Uh, I think the point that you ask, as you probably, we, I think we may have talked about in the past, is and questioning is very important. And I think as an as a educator, I've often said that the, we should be basing 
our educational system much, much more in questions than answers. And, 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 and it's that open discussion the, 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 that makes people less afraid, ultimately. And so it's really important to have in public forums discussions about things that you think many people might think are not appropriate. And that's w why I'm so excited about what we do at Origins, is, we, is the idea is to bring, is to have intelligent, entertaining, informative discussions that have, uh, get people talking about it afterwards and feeling much more comfortable about talking about things they might not have felt comfortable talking about before. Tonight at 7 at the Orpheum Theater in Phoenix, ASU's Origins Project will hold its latest great debate. This one is titled Political Bodies, Sex, Gender, and Reproductive Rights. We've been talking with Origins Project founder Lawrence Krauss and two of the panelists, Phyllis Randolph-Fry and Jennifer Finney-Boylan. Thanks to all of you for coming in. Thank you. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Branding comes in many forms, and rebranding can have a huge impact on the perception of and feelings about a person, company, or organization, and it can help a group increase its competitiveness. Recently, the Scottsdale Cultural Council changed its name to Scottsdale Arts, and here with me to talk about why and what's in the cards for the future is Scottsdale Arts President and CEO Neely Pearl. Neely, you're a cellist in addition to an administrator. At what point in your life did you feel really drawn in by the arts? I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and in fifth grade, I was sort of the last of a generation in New York to get music in the schools. I was given the cello. It changed my life. I calculate that in the last 30 years, I've reached over one million children through my career in their classrooms. So I think it's absolutely integral to a child's upbringing and education for them to not only experience the arts, but to participate in the arts, whether it's playing in an orchestra, a band, singing, painting, whatever, dancing, whatever interests them. I know that when I speak to our audience members and I'd say, oh, you know, what are your earliest memories? It's usually a parent or a grandparent took them to a concert or to a museum mm -hmm. and it's stuck with them. So in building new audiences for the future, it's very important to go directly into the classrooms and to reach out to these children. And we know that the arts can change lives. So it certainly changed my life. So in many ways, I guess my career has been about giving back. People are very familiar with the impact that the Scottsdale Cultural Council has had, whether it's the Center for the Arts or SMOCA or so many other things. What's the purpose of, of a rebrand like this? Why is it important that not only the name has changed, but a lot more has as well? Well, this is an, an outcropping of our um, strategic plan that was approved by the staff uh, about a year ago. Because as you mentioned, we're three different divisions, but we're one organization with a singular mission. And now we have a new name that celebrates that mission. We're a community-based organization. And we span, of course, the performing arts, visual arts, and public art is all around us. Is it more about the organization or more about what people see from the organization? I think it's a little bit about all of those things. So it's a wonderful opportunity to showcase the talents and the creativity of all of our divisions and what we bring to the table, what's unique about Scottsdale Arts. It had been discussed for many years. The old name served us well, the Cultural Council, but at the same time, a lot of people were wondering, well, is it a government agency? Mm -hmm. We are supported by the city of Scottsdale. But again, we have something for everyone. We have about 18 
100 events a year. We reach about 375,000 people across the valley. And we're going to be coming up on our 30th anniversary in 2017. So we thought now is really the time to do that as we launch the new and very exciting season, both at Smoka and at the center. Now, is this a reality when we think about how what competition is like? Um, Scottsdale has been established as an arts haven for a lot of people for a long time, but we're seeing more venues. We're seeing more companies sort of coming into play. Did that make the timing correct as well? It's interesting you say that because um, like most arts organizations, we're all about collaboration. So one of the reasons we wanted to announce the rebranding now is we have a new initiative that we're just beginning, and it's called Scottsdale Arts Presents. Mm -hmm. And right now we're doing a co-presentation with the Mesa Arts Center and also the Musical Instrument Museum, which of course is known as the MIM. And part of the initiative is to go beyond our 21-acre campus. If your audience has been there before, and let's hope they all have, they've seen the love sculpture. I always describe uh, our uh, center and the uh, Museum of Contemporary Art is not only being at the Civic Mall, but being right next to AZ-88. I think people somehow know locations in the valley here by the restaurants that are nearby. So what we're doing is taking the arts beyond our own campus. So this is not to replace anything. This is just an enhancement and an addition. So we have a new program called What Makes It Great, which will be at the MIM, mm -hmm. and it's all about classical music and learning uh, a new way to listen. Even public radio deals with this, too. You want to make sure that the loyal people who have loved you for years stick with you, but you also realize there are younger generations of folks who may have different interests. How broad does the, do the offerings have to be in order to hit all these sweet spots? Well, I like to say we have the best of everything for everybody. But, um, you know, education is central to our mission. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the way that we tie everything together in what we do. Because we have, um, obviously, field trips for students. We have master classes. We have teacher training. We have lectures, artist talks, uh, readings, master classes, so much for the community. And so much of that is free. And of course, that spans all three of our divisions. How long did it take to arrive at something like this? Because people might say, oh, that's Scottsdale Arts, so simple. Why didn't we think of that right away? Well, as a matter of fact, they did. <laughs> it was funny. The process took us um, 10 months, and we're very proud of the fact that we virtually didn't spend a dime other than printing new business cards and letterhead. Uh, we had a marketing task force, thanks to our board of directors, who was very well connected in the community. They got area professionals together, people who make their living helping market for-profit organizations and rebranding them. And the logo was actually the most challenging part. The name, Steve, was very amusing because about eight years ago, we selected the domain name scottsdalearts.org. So in reality, it's been there for eight years. <laughs> and the organization always wanted to change its name, or at least it did, it seems, for the past five years. But other, there were other priorities. And I felt that this was really important to rebrand the organization, to make it more relevant, and also to, um, to help encourage new people, new audience members to come find us. When we think about the arts in general, some people might say it's, of course, it's very subjective in terms of what people like, but there's also this feeling that some art really has to be thought-provoking. Is Scottsdale Arts comfortable with if there's some controversy about around some certain exhibit? Because you want it to be more than just the night of an event. You want things to spread out and have people talking about it as days and weeks go by. Sure. I think we have that in the performing arts, but we certainly have that at Smoka, yeah. 
in the visual arts. Uh, some of our audience members may remember Covert Operations, which created uh, a good bit of controversy in a very positive way. Mm-hmm. We have another programming program coming up, which is called Push Comes to Shove, Women in Power. It's going to be examining how art can be used as a catalyst for the transformation of women's roles in society. Mm-hmm. So again, um, as our director of the museum says, SMOCA is a laboratory for ideas. So we invite the public to come in, and it is thought-provoking for people. And I know that in the performing arts, because sort of that's my side, if you will, as a cellist, it's amazing how people take away different aspects of a performance. For some people, it's a wonderful chance to just relax and get their mind off of work. And for other people, they can't wait to meet the artists and get to know what motivates these artists. And so in that sense, we're just a medium to connect people to the arts. In general, Scottsdale is renowned for being a place that tourists love to come. When you think about the rebranding, when you think about the broad offerings that Scottsdale Arts has, how important a component do you think that is to Scottsdale's tourism as well? I think it's critical. Uh, A big part of our mission is to brand the city. And if you look at our new logo, you'll see some people said, oh, it almost looks like a skyline, Scottsdale. The name is so pronounced. Well, that was intentional, obviously. Uh, We do so many wonderful events, and so many of them are large-scale. Our arts festival attracts uh, 170 of the greatest artists from around the country to exhibit their work in the Civic uh, Mall. And also, I guess our biggest signature event is Canal Convergence, which is by the waterfront. And again, sometimes people think that's an oxymoron, and they wonder, where is the waterfront? And to get back to our analogy, I say it's, well, it's by Alvin Ivey and the Herb Box. So then people (laughs) know where it is. But that'll start in February. We attracted last year over 55,000 people. A lot of people come from around the state and now around the country. It's been written up in so many different magazines, travel magazines, and newspapers. And it becomes a focal point for the city driving tourism. And, of course, this is a great place for people to visit. Neely Pearl is president and CEO of the newly named Scottsdale Arts, formerly the Scottsdale Cultural Council. And Neely, thanks for coming in. Thank you. And that's all for today's edition of KJZZ's Here and Now. Thanks to senior producer Sarah Ventry and T.R. Vianne for their assistance on the program. And thank you very much for listening. If you want to hear my conversations with Board of Regents President Eileen Klein or Tom Collins of Clean Elections or one of our previous programs, please go online to kjzz.org later this afternoon. Or you can download the free KJZZ app to your smartphone. And you can also follow us on Twitter at KJZZ Here and Now. This is member-supported KJZZ FM Phoenix and HD. I'm Steve Goldstein. Have a great rest of the day. Try to stay dry. It's 12 o'clock. KJZZ is supported by Scottsdale Center for the Performing Arts. Grammy-winning singer-songwriter Mary Chapin Carpenter performs music from her latest album, The Things That We Are Made Of, September 25th, scottsdaleperformingarts.org.